0: Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this evening, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll be reading the entire chapter. Let's give careful attention now to God's Holy Word beginning in verse 1 And though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. But then I shall know just as I also am known, and now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. As we continue our series on 1 Corinthians 13, which we've been looking at off and on for I'm not sure, maybe as long as a year, but it's an important chapter for us to consider. It's an important subject. Paul says that Christian love is indispensable. If we have not love, we have nothing. doesn't matter what our gifts, our accomplishments, our achievements, doesn't matter. If we don't have love, ultimately we're unconverted and headed for hell. If we don't have love, we don't have Christ. We don't have salvation. If we don't have love, nothing else that we do have ultimately matters at all. This is a very, very crucial chapter in the New Testament that we need to pay careful attention to. And so we consider, uh, we continue, rather, our exposition of it, picking up in verse 5, where the Apostle Paul says that love does not behave rudely. He says that love does not seek its own. And then he says, love is not provoked. Love is not provoked. Or if you go with the rendering of the King James Version, uh, which adds a word, it's not strict word for word. Some of the King James only propagandists might be unhappy with that. Um, In this case, the New King James gives us word for word. The King James gets creative, uh, but it's a helpful creativity. They add the word easily, which, which is helpful. It undercuts the King James only propaganda, but well, maybe that's a good thing. But it does add a helpful connotation here. Love is not easily provoked. That's the idea that Paul's bringing to our attention here. He's talked about love not behaving rudely. And he said that, in other words, love is sensitive and careful to not... Act in an inappropriate way. Sensitive and careful not to offend other people. And we've considered that at length. Uh, love does not seek its own. So love is not self-centered, self-absorbed, self-oriented. We've considered that. But now he continues down this same line of reasoning. And he says that love is not provoked. Or in other words, love is not easily provoked. Love is not easily provoked to take offense. Love is not easily provoked to anger. Love is not irritable. This is the the basic idea here. God is slow to anger and we ought to be slow to anger. We ought not to be easily provoked in that respect. Now, as we begin our consideration of this phrase, I want to ask you a question. Do you consider yourself to be a hateful person. Are you a hateful person? Okay, Most of us, we take a question like that and we'd say, wow, why would you ask me that? Most of us fancy ourselves to be loving people. We don't think of ourselves as hateful people. But the Scriptures tell us that we all by nature are hateful people. Uh, Titus 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So by nature, we're hateful people. So if you're outside of Christ this evening, you're a hateful person. I mean, that's, that's what the Bible says. If you're a Christian, understand you've been liberated from sin, you've been saved from bondage to that hateful spirit, that hateful attitude. However, You have remaining sin in your life. Sin has not been utterly eliminated from your soul. You have remaining sin. You're a new creature in Christ, but there is still sin living inside of you, according to Romans chapter 7. So, insofar as that sinful flesh remains, you have the capacity to be a hateful person in in many instances. And what 1 Corinthians 13 is doing by, by way of implication, is it's saying to the extent that you or I do not conform to the definition of love, that means we're not loving, well, uh, that's a really nice way to say it, but what's it really? It's, then we're hateful. To the extent that we are not conformed to this chapter, we are engaging in hatred. We are cultivating or tolerating hatred in our thoughts words and actions so it's very crucial for us to recognize even as believers and this sermon is really focusing on uh, the children of God wrestling with this chapter um, are you a hateful person at times now if you look at these things that Paul mentions here he says love suffers long and is kind, love does not envy, love does not parade itself, so on and so forth, you'd have to admit that you don't perfectly conform to what Paul says. So I'm just just trying to prepare you. You need to wrestle with this. You need to come to grips with the fact that to the extent that you're not meeting that description or I'm not meeting that description, we are engaging in hatred. Let's call it what it is. Let's not use euphemisms. Well, I'm not as loving as I should be. Okay, but I'm being hateful when I'm not conforming to what Paul says here. Very important that we're just honest with ourselves. The other thing I would say by way of introduction is that I think it's very unlikely that I'm going to say anything in this sermon that you haven't heard before. I think it's very likely a sermon like this, probably most of the sermons in this series, are simply expounding things that you already know are true. And when I go down the list of applications and explain what Paul is saying and the practical ramifications for the way we ought to act and live, and, and I give examples of how we should be convicted of our sin, I doubt there's anyone in here, if there is anyone, probably very few in here, that wouldn't say, yeah, I know that. I know that. And, and that's a good thing as G.I. Joe taught us in the 80's knowing is half the battle. But we need to get past that. We need to get past the point where we hear the Word of God expounding a certain aspect of the Christian life. And it's an aspect of the Christian life where we feel convicted that we're not obeying God. And the best we can do is say, yep, I know that. We've got to get past that. We've got to move beyond that. Jesus says in John 13, verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You can go to James chapter 1. He says essentially the same thing, that we're blessed in the doing of God's Word. We need to get past just knowing it. Uh, Okay, Jesus says, you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That's a verse that ought to be on Christian t-shirts and bumper stickers and so on. That's a, that's a, that's a very relevant verse for us. So we got to get past simply knowing what Paul is saying. Nothing I'm going to say in this sermon very likely is going to shock you, but you need to actually take it in and store it up, treasure it up in your heart and practice it in your life as the catechism says. Now, as we look at this statement, love is not easily provoked. We first note that biblical love requires us to be sensitive in a variety of ways. And let's think of some examples. We ought to be sensitive. In a sense, we ought to be easily provoked to zeal for a number of things. We ought to be stirred up to action. Easily provoked with zeal for the glory of God. The Apostle Paul was in Athens in Acts chapter 17. And he saw the idolatry all around him. All of these people worshiping idols on their way to a lost eternity. And he was provoked. And I don't think it was difficult for him to be provoked. He was a godly man. He's sensitive to the glory of God. Uh, We could say perhaps he was easily provoked to zeal for the glory of God. And and he, he then proclaimed the gospel to those people. We ought to be easily provoked with zeal for the law of God. We ought to have sensitive consciences that are easily stirred to action to be convicted of sin or to deal with sin in the life of the church or in our families insofar as our place and calling enables us to do that. Think of Phineas at the tabernacle when uh, the Israelite had taken, uh, taken up a, a Midianite her Moabite girlfriend, and brought her into the tabernacle and just completely despising the Lord and profaning His ordinances. Phineas was, we could say, not, not in a foolish way, uh, but it wasn't difficult for him as a godly man to be stirred up to action, provoked with zeal for God's law, for God's house. Jesus Christ, our Savior, was stirred up to zeal for the house of God. In John chapter 2, he cleansed the temple when the money changers were making a mockery of God's house. We ought to be easily provoked and stirred up to love and good works. Hebrews 10 tells us that's one of the purposes of gathering together on the Lord's Day for worship. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but consider one another. Be sensitive. Recognize and identify ways that you can stir up other people to love and good works. And by way of inference, we ought to be easily provoked and stirred up ourselves to love the brethren and to perform good works. So biblical love requires us to be sensitive and easily provoked in a number of areas. However, by nature in our sinful flesh, we tend to be hard-hearted and insensitive with respect to these things, that we should be easily provoked and stirred up for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor, but we tend to be hard-hearted and insensitive toward these types of things, while remaining highly sensitive to a number of other things. For instance, our own honor, our own comfort, our own advantage. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles are easily provoked and stirred up to be concerned about these things, to seek first these things. Psalm 4 says many people are saying who will show us any good? Our own comfort, our own honor, our own advantage. We're easily stirred up with zeal for these things. We're very sensitive to these things. Why? Because as Paul addressed earlier in the verse, Uh, we we seek our own. Love doesn't seek its own, but you see, that's the problem. Our hearts are infected with hatred. That is, with self-love that causes us to be zealous for ourselves and disregard the concerns of others. We also tend to be highly sensitive to the sins of other people, as opposed to our own sin. As I said, we should be sensitive to the law of God. We should be easily provoked to the conviction of sin, the hatred of sin, the killing of sin in our own lives. We should be easily convicted when a brother confronts us, easily convicted if we've sinned. But we tend to be hard-hearted and insensitive to those things. Instead, we're very sensitive to the sins of other people, especially the sins of other people that tend to impact our lives. Things that bother us. Things that affect us negatively. Especially sins that happen to be committed against us. We're very sensitive to these things. Again, because we're seeking our own. We're consumed with self. And because of this, we're often slow to hear those who find fault with us and quick to accuse others of faults that we perceive in them even at times blaming other people for the faults that they see in us. Or perhaps the faults that we even see in ourselves. We admit these faults, but we find a way to blame other people because again, we're very sensitive to the sins of other people, especially those committed against ourselves or those that impact us. You think of Adam and Eve when they fell into sin. Genesis 3, 12 and 13. right? Adam blames Eve... Or blames God for giving him Eve, so he's just blaming everybody. Eve blames the serpent, so on and so forth. It's the blame game. We blame others. We're sensitive to how others have impacted uh, our, our own situation. Now this defensive, hard-hearted, fault-finding attitude toward others uh, is, is very dangerous, especially when it's combined with a super-sensitive personal victim complex when you combine a hard-hearted fault-finding attitude with a super sensitive personal victim complex you find the kind of thing that we see all around us in the world today really it's nothing more than conformity to the pattern of this world and so romans chapter 12 verse 2 warns us against conforming to the pattern of this world So to the extent that our mind or our mindset is conformed to the world, we're going to start thinking and acting like the world. And I don't need to tell you that we live in an age of hard-hearted, fault-finding attitudes combined with a super-sensitive personal victim complex. That's the world that we live in. We live in a world where everybody's super sensitive, everybody's offended by every little thing and everybody's making mountains out of molehills and seeking to cancel people because of of uh, speaking a word or, or, or a certain phrase or a certain line of thought that, you know, if you follow this inference to that inference and the other and, and you know, eight inferences later, that's racism, you see, or that's. That, that's anti American. That's, that, that's communist. Or, you know, the accusations flying from the right to the left and the left to the right nonstop in our culture. And we, we just accuse people and we're almost looking for excuses to malign and attack other people and label them in one way or another. But you see, that comes in the life of the church. In the life of the church, we can very easily be infected with this mentality. Now, we've already seen there's a balance here. Love is not rude. And so we should be sensitive. We should not be trying to say things. In fact, we should try to avoid saying things that are going to offend people. We already had a sermon on that. You can listen to it on the internet. Love is not rude. Absolutely. We should not be saying things that are going to provoke other people to wrath. We should not be saying things that that are going to be offensive, we should avoid offense where, it, where that is possible. Use common sense. But love is also not easily provoked. Love is not looking for the offense. Love is not seeking to misconstrue somebody's words and intentions to try to fit them into a certain box so that, so that they can say, well, you're a socialist, you're a communist, well, no, you're a racist, no, you're this, you're that. You see it all over the, the media. Everybody's hurling insults. Nobody's listening to each other. That's the pattern of the world. But that can easily happen. That can easily happen in the church. Now, some examples of an easily provoked spirit would include the following First, refusing to overlook minor offenses. Somebody may offend us, somebody may say something that rubs us the wrong way comes across in a certain way and bothers us but we need to get to the point where we understand what the scripture means when it says love covers a multitude of sins uh, if this is a sin that we just can't cover we can't sweep it under you know we we just can't deal with it we can't cover it in love with a good conscience or we simply can't cover it in love without retaining bitterness. Okay, then we need to talk to the person. We need to confront them, we need to work it out because we're not able to deal with it or it's of such a significant nature that we need to talk to that brother or sister, Matthew 18 style and and bring this to their attention. But in many instances, you know this yourself. Again, I told you, nothing in the sermon is going to surprise you. But you know, there are minor offenses that can be overlooked, and when we encounter these types of minor offenses that can be overlooked, we need to overlook them. It's a man's glory to overlook an offense, the proverb says. But if we're, if we're not overlooking offenses, if, if we're just not only not overlooking them but secondly exaggerating small offenses, taking small things and making them large things, this is an easily provoked spirit. Where we ought to be patient and bear with what's happening. We ought to cover it in love. But instead, we are easily provoked to just blow up. We're easily provoked to to be angry, to be frustrated, to be blowing things out of proportion. You know yourself, our sinful nature tends to do that. We tend to blow things out of proportion. Even when it's a minor offense, we could have just let it go, but we don't. And we mouth off. And we, we, we lose our temper. Or we say things that are unkind, that are exaggerating things. Okay, those are some examples. Thirdly, poisoning the well. This is one of the most common ways in which we manifest an easily provoked spirit and which paves the way for more and more offenses. Poisoning the well. In other words, actively seeking to discredit or demonize another person. It might be your spouse, it might be a sibling, it might be somebody in the workplace or in, in the church or in the neighborhood, who knows what it is. But there, there are offenses maybe that exist, there's tension, but you begin to, to poison the well in your own mind and perhaps with those around you. You begin to sow seeds of discord, again for yourself or for others, so that Pretty much everything that person does is wrong. That person can't do anything right. You've demonized them. You've discredited them in the same way Republicans and Democrats, right? Whatever the Democrats do, it's wrong if you ask a Republican, right? And whatever the Republicans are doing, it's wrong if you ask a Democrat. And I know, you know, that's not always the case. You have these moderates in the middle, but, the, but, but you get the point. When you've got conservatives and liberals they begin to so demonize and discredit one another, they so poison the well, that it's impossible to get drinkable water out of that well. It doesn't matter what the the liberal or the conservative says, for the people on the other side of the aisle, it's all wrong, it's all horrible, it's all going to destroy the nation. Poisoning the well. This is a dangerous phenomenon in our personal relationships in the home. This is toxic, even deadly for marriages. In the church, this is how churches split. The, you know, the Hatfields and the McCoys. And the fact is, we can be so tempted by this type of mentality that we can be listening to a sermon just like this, and our foremost thought in our mind is not, how does this apply to me? Where do I need to repent? But we're trying to think, oh, okay, how does what the pastor is saying right now apply to the McCoys versus the Hatfields? And, and how does it apply to my spouse versus what I think? How does it apply to this person, that person? I, I, there are these disputes and disagreements and, and, and if that's where you're at, recognize you're, you're in trouble, right? I don't think you're beyond the scope of uh, help and restoration, but you're, you're up disunity creek without a paddle, okay? It's a problem. We can't think this way. We need to get away from thinking this way. Otherwise, we're going to be easily provoked by anything and everything that that other person or group of people does. We're just going to demonize and, and, and negatively interpret every single thing they do, just like uh, conservatives and liberals on their radio talk shows, poisoning the well. Fourthly, prejudging people based on hearsay prejudging people based on hearsay you know if if i don't know somebody and i've heard from somebody else something about that person and i don't know them personally if i begin to view that person through the lens of what i've heard about them rather than my own personal experience i mean it's one thing if i've observed it personally it's another thing if i view that person through the lens of things I've heard from others. In other words, prejudice. If I fall into that, and I'm prejudging someone based on hearsay, in a way it connects to poisoning the well because I've, I've begun to view the person as a poisoned well, so no matter what the water is coming up in the bucket, I'm just assuming it's bad right away. This is a huge problem. It can cause us to be offended by people that we wouldn't have otherwise been offended. This is the problem with, with when we gossip. When we say things that we shouldn't say, it can provoke other people to be offended by things that they wouldn't otherwise be offended by in that person. And we've all been on the other end of this. We've, we, we, we all know what it's like, and you feel like, well, why am I not getting a fair shake from this person or that person? Well, we've got to be careful that, that we're not creating a lens by which people are discredited. Now, it is the case that in some cases, somebody's discrediting themselves. And that's a whole other phenomenon. But I'm saying we shouldn't add to it. Fifthly, a way that we manifest an easily provoked spirit or, or something that, in a way that's connected to that is when we interpret people's words in the worst possible way. This happens. Again, because we're selfish, we tend to think of the times it's happened against us. But I'm sure we've done it to other people. uh, Where we interpret their words in the worst possible way. And perhaps you're in an argument with somebody. And they say something. And at the moment they say it, you're in the argument. So you're trying to think about what you can say next to win the argument. And so it's convenient for you to interpret what they're saying in the worst possible way so that you have ammunition for your next argument and and so on and so forth to win the argument. And so you interpret what they're saying in the worst possible way so that you can win the argument. That's what I'm saying here. That's an easily provoked spirit. It could be that they didn't mean that. It could be that there's an explanation of their words and it it could be there's ten different explanations or interpretations of what they said, and you're intentionally choosing the worst of the ten, so that, so that you can accuse them, so that you can gain an upper hand in the argument. Interpreting people's words in the worst possible way. Uh, have you ever done that? I've done that. Have you ever done that? I think it's, I think it's a, a, a common temptation that we have when we're in the midst of an argument. And we need to be careful because what happens is there could be a perfectly reasonable interpretation, in fact, multiple interpretations of what the person said that are totally reasonable, and yet we're harping on that worst-case scenario. Now, none of us likes to be treated that way. I don't like people uh, evaluating what I say and do in that regard. Jesus says that in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. He says love your neighbor as yourself. He says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So sometimes it's helpful to just stop and think, if it were me on the other end of the situation, uh, would I want my words to be interpreted in the same way that I'm interpreting the words of other people? That's a good way to guard yourself in this respect. Because it's no fun to have your words misconstrued sixthly refusing to hear a person's explanation this is so common we come to the conclusion somebody has sinned against us and we're not willing to listen to their explanation either the explanation of what they just said to us in the conversation and we're thinking of the worst case uh, interpretation, and they're saying, no, no, you've misunderstood, I didn't mean it that way, and we won't listen to them, or maybe we heard that they did something, or we've heard an account of something they said, or whatever it is, and and we're jumping to conclusions, we're condemning, we're, we're accusing, and the person says, no, 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 wait, I have an explanation, let me explain, here are the reasons, here's the background, here's the context... But we're all too ready to be provoked to offense. We don't give the person a chance. It's almost like we're dead set on being offended, and so we're just going to be offended. And we're you know talk to the hand. I don't want to hear your explanation. Have you ever said that to somebody when they're trying to explain why they said or did something, and you say I don't even care. I don't want to hear your explanation. I'm just going to stomp off or or whatever. Uh, that's an easily provoked spirit. Maybe there's an explanation. Why not listen? Maybe it can avoid a lot of unnecessary conflict. Seventhly, accusation before inquiry. Accusation before inquiry. Do you ever accuse people before you even have a clue what you're talking about? And this can be in very mundane, relatively trivial things in the home with your spouse with your children, with your siblings in the home, where, you know, one sibling says to another, oh, you know, you stole my, my my favorite pair of jeans, or or whatever it is, right? Or my favorite hat. You know, are you making accusations before you've actually inquired and asked questions to determine what actually happened? Are you quick to the trigger? Are you a critically minded person that is shooting out criticisms against people in your family, in the church, or whatever whatever context, in the workplace, without actually doing your homework to figure out what actually happened. That's an easily provoked spirit. You're provoked to offense before you even know what's happening. Before you've even taken the time to ask the person that you think may have offended you, why don't you ask them first? Why don't you say, hey, what's up with this? and find out if they have an explanation before you bring that accusation. This is toxic in our relationships to be easily provoked to accuse people and rip them up and down and make snide comments and, and, and say, you know, just sometimes we can do it in, in, you know, by way of insinuation and indirectly and so on and so forth before we've even asked them for an, for an account. Eighthly, incentivizing offenses. Kind of already touched on this, but incentivizing offenses. Now, we haven't gotten yet to what Paul says when he says love thinks no evil. Uh, I think these are very much connected and and we're going to spend some time, possibly multiple sermons on that one. But some have translated verse 5 at the very end there that love keeps no record of wrongs. Love thinks no evil. And I I, I don't want to get into that part of the verse prematurely here, but, but there's something of that in the verse. It, it is Part of the meaning is love keeps no record of wrongs. And he goes on to say, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Now, in these conflicts that develop between ourselves and others, in the home, in the church, in the workplace, in the community, maybe it's you and your neighbor, who knows? But in these types of conflicts, we can keep a record of wrongs and we can rejoice when somebody does something wrong and that we get to put a notch in the iniquity column because it bolsters our case against them, you see. And so we're happy to hear that the person that we're having a conflict with has made a big mistake. We're happy to hear that they've said or done something really stupid or something that's evil. Something that would qualify as iniquity. We're not actually rooting for them to say and do what's right. We're rejoicing because we're keeping a record of that iniquity and we're putting the notch in that column. Because what's happened is we've, so, we've become so ingrained in the conflict, we're so ready to be offended and provoked that we've almost incentivized the offense. It benefits us for them to offend us, right? Again, this is conformity to the world. You see this all the time with conservatives and liberals. They want the people on the other side of the aisle to say and do bad things so that they can get up and grandstand and say, oh, it's so horrible. Why? Because they're actually gaining points in the conflict. There's an incentive to be offended I love watching the World Cup. I, you know, I don't watch a lot of soccer or football as they say, other than that. But I always love every four years watching the World Cup. Uh, but one thing that bothers me is this phrase that the announcer will use when somebody has the ball and maybe they have a scoring chance and then they get fouled. And he says that the, the player won the foul. And you see this in soccer where they, they, the players, and it, this is not, nothing against soccer. I love watching soccer, and I think soccer players are some of the most gifted athletes on planet Earth. But uh, they're always trying to win the foul. It's, a, it, it's almost as if the goal is to get fouled. If you can get fouled inside the, the penalty area, inside the 18-yard line, if you can win the foul, and, and if you win the foul, and then you're able to roll around on, on, the, on the pitch, on the field long enough to persuade the referee that you're really hurt, uh, and you're moaning and crying, of course covering your face because it's all a big ruse, but you, know, you can win further fouls. You can, you know, the other team will get a yellow card or maybe a red card. That's one thing that I just utterly despise about soccer. It's, it's unmanly. But, you see, you, the people do this in their relationships. They're trying to win the foul. They're trying to get the other, you know, your siblings Children, you know, maybe you're, you're trying to get your sister or your brother to get a red card or a yellow card or to get in trouble with mom and dad. Uh, love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is not trying to win the foul. Love is trying to win the person. Love is not rejoicing in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Now finally, another uh, example of an easily provoked spirit is... When we have an obvious double standard, when we have an obvious double standard, in other words, we're easily provoked by the very same things that we're doing or that we have done in very recent experience. Um, And so when we get offended by people, we need to think about it. Okay, which commandment are they breaking against us? Which commandment? And, and when was the last time I broke that commandment? Had to repent. Had to ask forgiveness. And we should begin to humble ourselves. Begin to think about how gracious God has been toward us. We should begin to think about how gracious other people have been toward us in bearing with us in the very same categories, in some cases, where, where they're sinning against us, we've sinned against them. Uh, but it can be even worse. I mean, Jesus talks about people that have a log in their own eye and they see a speck in somebody else's eye. Notice it's in both cases, as many have pointed out, it's the same substance in both of their eyes. It's just, you know, a speck is smaller, a smaller piece of wood than a log, but it's it's wood in, in both of their eyes. And oftentimes we can find fault with other people in the same areas that we're in the wrong or we've been in the wrong and God is bearing with us and other people are forgiving us and And we need to think to ourselves, am I rude? Am I hurtful? Am I insensitive? Because we're going to be judged by the same standard and and the same standard we use to judge others. That's the standard by which we will be judged. Romans 2 says, uh, verse 1, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. So examine yourself. It's not my job to examine you. I mean, assuming it's not some kind of obvious outward scandal. But you need to examine yourself when you find yourself in the midst of these conflicts and offenses being taken. And often it's, it's an easily provoked spirit. Examine yourself. Is there an obvious double standard in what you're upset about in the other person versus... Uh, what, what you may have actually done to them in the same category. Think about that. Examine yourself. Now, in looking at this statement, love is not easily provoked, it's important for us to understand that when one person provokes another person to wrath or to any sin, that both are at fault. Uh, When one person provokes another person to wrath or to sin, both individuals are at fault. We know that the one who does the provoking is at fault. So in other words, this is not just sort of the the kind of uh, statement that Paul's making here. He's not letting you off the hook if you're provoking people to sin, provoking them to wrath, acting in a rude and inappropriate way. It's not as though... Paul is saying the fault is entirely on the side of the person who's being provoked or, 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 or something like that. No, he's saying the provocateur is at fault. Ephesians six four, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. So that's a sin, to provoke your children to wrath. The provocateur, even if the person's being easily provoked, if you're provoking them, You are at fault. We sang this just before the service in our pre service psalm in Psalm 106, verse 33. We're told that the Israelites rebelled against God's Spirit so that Moses spoke rashly with his lips. So the Israelites provoked, or yeah, the Israelites provoked Moses. To wrath, to sin, to say, Oh, you rebels, and to strike the rock with God's rod. And because of that, Moses was kept out of the promised land. But we're told here that the people, I mean, it's obvious from, from the text of the psalm, the people sinned. They rebelled against God's spirit when they provoked Moses to wrath. So the provocateur is at fault. I don't want us to be unclear about that. Matthew chapter 18. Verses 6 and 7. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come. So Jesus is saying there are offenses. They're going to come. God has ordained them to come. And... From the other standpoint, we shouldn't be easily provoked. We should recognize realistically we're going to get offended. These things are going to come. And we shouldn't pretend that they're not going to come. They will come. They must come. But, woe to that man by whom the offense comes. So there's moral accountability for the provocateur. Because it's sinful to provoke other people to wrath or to any type of sin you know, we could use this with immodesty, right? It, it's a sin for somebody to lust after a woman, but if the woman's dressed in a certain way that's immodest, it's a sin to provoke or advertise or, or in some way promote that type of lust with, with one's apparel. So the provocateur is at fault. But also, the one who is provoked to sin is at fault for their sin. Again, Moses, the people rebelled against the Holy Spirit and provoked Moses to speak rashly with his lips, but guess what? Moses was still accountable for speaking rashly with his lips. God barred him from entering the promised land because of the sin that he committed, though he was greatly provoked by sinful, rebellious Israelites. So there's accountability on both sides. So, at no point, if we're the provocateur, should we be sitting back and saying, well, this person's easily provoked and that person's easily provoked. And, 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 you know, cry me a river. You need to deal with the fact that you're doing things that are provoking people. And suck it up and repent. But if you're on the other side, and you're the one who's being provoked to sin, you can't use it as an excuse Well, they're provoking me. Well, yes, Potiphar's wife is provoking Joseph, trying to tempt him to commit sexual immorality. But guess what? Through Christ, we can do all things. We can triumph over that provocation. We can hold down the fort and take the way of escape and not sin. Joseph did not commit sexual sin with Potiphar's wife. Even though he was provoked, or at least there was a a consistent daily provocation seeking to tempt him in that direction, but he didn't do it. By the grace of God, you can resist the devil and he will flee. If you can resist the devil, you can resist whatever person in your life is offending you because they're a lot less powerful and influential than the devil. You can resist temptation. So there's never an excuse. If there was an excuse, Moses, the meekest man on earth, would not have been barred from the promised land. That's how serious God took it, that he sinned even though he was provoked. So we need accountability across the board. And of course, the provocation to sin and the easily provoked spirit are not always in balance. Sometimes the provocation can be a 10 on the Richter scale and the sin that's provoked can be a two or a three, and vice versa. But all things being equal, the most important way of coming to grips with the, the, the relative guilt of these sins and understanding which is more dangerous, which is, which is more heinous in the sight of God, the key is whether a person is repenting and being teachable. Okay? So if you're provoking people to wrath, or if you're being provoked to wrath or sin, the key here is to recognize that sin and to repent of it and to seek forgiveness and to strive by the grace of God to do better the next time. If you're not doing that, you're going to go off the rails. You're going to go off the rails in your family. You're going to go off the rails in the church. You're going to go off the rails, period. So, it's very crucial to examine yourself, recognize, confess your sin, and strive by the grace of God to make incremental progress in this area. Now, how are you going to do that in closing? Uh, We don't need to spend a lot of time on how we do that because it's extremely simple. And as I said, it's nothing that's going to be some big revelation that you've never heard of before. You need to consider how patient God is with you every day. God knows everything. God knows everything in your heart. He knows everything in your thought life. He records every word that you've ever spoken. He sees and perceives every sin that you commit every time you grieve His Spirit, every time you fall short of His glory. And God is perfectly holy. He knows more about your sin than anybody else, and He hates sin more than anybody else. And yet, He's patient with you. And dear believer, He loves you, and His, if we could say, His holy irritation at your sin does not prevent Him from being compassionate and sympathetic and gracious. While you were yet a sinner, He reconciled you to Himself, made peace between you and Him through the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. How patient, how compassionate, how loving is God towards you? To what extent did God, as it were, bend over backwards to reconcile Himself with you? That's the substance of the Gospel. If you're a believer, you know that. You believe that. So if that's what God has done, if that's who Jesus is in His ministry as our mediator, then we ought to be Peacemakers, children of God who bend over backwards, who do everything possible to promote reconciliation, to cover offenses in love, to speak the truth in love when we have to confront people. All of these things flow from a basic understanding and uh, imitation of God Himself in His dealings with us. Paul says it in Ephesians 4, verse 31 and 32, let all bitterness Wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. So that means forgiving people when they ask for forgiveness. That means agreeing to disagree when you can't come to grips and you see an offense and they don't, and it's a relatively minor offense and you try to hear out both sides. And and sometimes it means agreeing to disagree. Sometimes it means apologizing in the best way that you can apologize in a good conscience. Not a fake or phony apology, but sometimes saying, hey, I didn't mean, if I did offend you, I didn't mean that. I'm not convicted of sin here, but... I understand what you're saying. I'll try to do things differently and avoid offense. I mean, whatever you can do within the bounds of your conscience, informed by the Word of God, you need to do everything you can to promote unity, healing, reconciliation, and not be easily provoked, and not be easily stirred up to strife and fear. And, and keeping track of the points and, oh, my friends, this is dangerous. It's, it's deadly. And it's, it's an abomination in the sight of God. May we be imitators of God. And, and having considered all these things, I'm just going to leave you with where we started in John 13, verse 17. If you know these things, and I trust virtually all of us in this room, we would say, yes, I know. For the most part, I mean, I'm not saying maybe there's something in the sermon you disagreed with, but for the most part, in substance, right? Yes, I know. Well, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Put these things into practice. Meditate, think, ask God, how can I implement this verse? How can I cover offenses in love? How can I deal with offenses in a biblical way, with a biblical attitude, And how can I stop listening to sermons and trying to discern which side of the aisle? No, no. Apply it to yourself. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks for the wisdom of Your Word. For we are by nature foolish and disobedient, hateful and hating one another. But You have extended to us your infinite and everlasting love in Jesus Christ. And you have put love in our hearts. And we know that we've passed from death to life because we do love the brethren. And it is good and pleasant to gather with our brothers and sisters and dwell together in unity. We pray that you would enable us to be peacemakers, that we would not be easily provoked, but that we would even suffer long and be kind one to another. Lord, these are impossible things with man. But with God, all things are possible. Sanctify us in Your truth. Your Word is truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.